everyone. Welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out all of my written reviews, over 4,000 of them. You can find online at Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. I also want to remind you that I do a film review podcast covering new films. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. You can search for it wherever you're listening to this right now. It's almost sure that you're going to find it. If you don't, let me know and I'll see if I can get my show added onto that platform wherever it is. Today we're going to be looking at the third and final film in which we have Dangerous Video Games. Now there happens to be maybe a couple of more that probably fit this category, but I'm going to keep it to three for now. We'll get into another trilogy of films and I'll mention that at the end of this show. The film I'm going to be reviewing today is one of the most well-known, even though it was kind of a a little bit of a disappointment when it was out in the box office. It became a cult hit. A lot of people know about this film today. It is called Tron. It is from 1982. It's a PG-rated film. It does have sci-fi action violence and brief mild language. The runtime is an hour and 36 minutes. The main stars are Jeff Bridges and Bruce Boxleitner, along with David Warner. Cindy Morgan is also in the film. The director and the screenwriter is Steven Lisberger. Now, in the 1980s, Disney had been on the course of trying to find its footing again for the prominence that it once held in the world of animation, and that included pulling in talent from other spheres to try to stay innovative. And for their 1982 release, Tron, which is a shortening of the word electronic, that's where the title stems from, they brought aboard an animator and video game enthusiast named Steven Lisberger. He'd been working on the conception of the project for several years. He was inspired by this notion of people being trapped within the world of video games he'd been addicted to, especially Pong. He thought, wouldn't it be interesting if people were actually in the game playing? Producer Don Kushner also joined on board and to join this realm of computer animation where the notions of computer as an alternate reality proved popular. Steven Lisberger's original intent had been to make a traditionally animated film. This was going to be hand-drawn with some live-action scenes that were bookending the hand-drawn sequences. On a much smaller budget for a 1981 release, it was going to be more of an independent film. He had trouble finding the funding, though, when another project he had been working on, namely Animal Olympics, did not pan out as expected, probably because the U.S. had boycotted the Olympics back in 1980, making it harder to market. Now, Disney still liked what Lisberger and Kushner were coming up with, so in 1980, they hoped to expand their film demographic beyond young kids to appeal to teens and younger adults, so they bought the rights to this project and gave them over $20 million to play around with in order to make it, if they could get it, released by the summer of 1982. As far as what the plot is about, we have Jeff Bridges playing a man named Kevin Flynn. He's this video game programmer. He ends up getting ripped off of several ideas by this unscrupulous, power-hungry man in the company called Ed Dillinger, played by David Warner. Dillinger uses that information to start his meteoric rise to the top and become vice president in this powerful global corporation called Encom, while the computer that is used to run Encom has become very powerful, so powerful that it's a life force unto itself. It's thinking, it's talking, not to mention plotting world domination. So Kevin Flynn tries to hack into that computer to get evidence of the theft by Dillinger when the master computer itself sucks Flynn into its own cyber world, dubbed the grid, where programs, anthropomorphized programs, basically in the voice and the form of the programmers that created them, they end up being mere toys by which master computer 
can use for its own enjoyment through a series of games that will end up de-resing everybody, you know, de-resolution, basically. So there's more to the story than that, because it's a very high-concept premise. As far as the film Tron goes, though, it's an experience more of the sight than it is of the mind. It has truly gorgeous, mind-blowing special effects, which are, for its era, they're the must-see highlight of this Otherwise, you know, fairly weakly scripted misfire from Disney. All of the ingenuity seemed to go into creating this fantasy world of special effects, while not very many ideas seem to have made its way into this script that has very little in the way of humor. It does have sparse dialogue barely rising above the level of a typical comic book. Even though there were dozens of extensive rewrites during the film's development phase, it still feels like very scant goods, probably because... So much time and effort actually went into getting that look right. So on top of this, the film is very confusing, and that's partially due to the fact that it's not really built up very well in terms of expository information that would keep viewers clued in as to what's going on from a motivation standpoint. There is a novelization of this film that ended up actually explaining a lot of that. would have made a lot more sense, but it doesn't end up in the movie. So a lot of people do recommend the novelization as a companion to the movie to better understand the movie, and they say you will enjoy it a lot better. I can't vouch for that. I did not read it. But now, without a plot that most viewers are going to be able to readily follow if they have not read the novelization, and without characters who do or really say anything interesting on their own, and without any other moments of enjoyment within the writing or the direction that lead to big excitement, I think that the only thing that the makers of Tron can offer to sustain interest are those visuals, and for some, that will be enough. But I think anybody looking for something more than a dazzling display is going to find very little in Tron to be engaging for the duration. Now, as for the writing and the direction by Steven Lisberger, it's conceptually brilliant in its fashion, but... Some of that work is nearly undone by the fact that his writing and his directorial skills were not really up to the speed that were necessary to deliver on those high concepts. Now, Lisberger certainly tries to some extent to imbue his film with the kind of evil versus good confrontations that ran very popular in the wake of films like Star Wars, which is certainly one of Tron's main influences, although others have cited that there were more than one or two similarities between Tron and, say, a film, an epic film, 1960's Spartacus. However, I would say to fault Lisberger solely for the stiffness that's inherent within the finished product is probably not warranted. I really don't want to lay too much blame on him even though he did write and direct the film, because Tron was truly a groundbreaking endeavor in the realm of animation. And so many who were working on the film, namely a slew of computer programmers who were very new to the realm of big-budget Hollywood filmmaking, and with all of the hustle and bustle and doing a lot with very little in time, those computer programmers, you know, they had not worked on a film, so they only really knew how to generate visual effects that were intended using computers and didn't really know what worked or maybe what didn't work from a compelling cinematic standpoint. They didn't have have that knowledge base to be able to produce that. And although the film boasts a very healthy budget, the cost of making this world within the cyberscape fully computer animated would prove to be too expensive, so they required ways to bring in live action actors and sets whenever possible, and they ended up touching up the film with some traditional hand-drawn animation to mix in, and also tried to make them geometric in appearance so they blended in with those computer animations, which are mostly straight lines and boxes and whatnot. 
over these backgrounds that were backlit with computer designs, these spider-like grid bugs, for example, being the most obvious of the animated portions of this film. And this, of course, means that those analog injections into the film need to match with the digital, so the actors in the various sets and the props, they all needed to get that similar look of light and dark and all of the color scheme involved. They shot the film in black and white and added the color in later, hand-drawing each cell with those colors. And reportedly, artist Jean Giraud, the AKA Mobius, worked on the original designs for the various characters as well as their costumes, which would earn the film one of its two Academy Award nominations, the other being for its impressive sound work, and the film's virtual reality sequences. So getting beyond all of that, as I mentioned earlier, this was a Disney film, and for Disney fans, some of the material, they've been able to kind of construct their own thematic material over it. For instance, the founder of the company, Encom, is a man not so coincidentally named Walter, like Walt, Disney, who takes a backseat to those who've usurped the company's legacy for their own profits and tells Walter that the company is no longer the same one that he created from his garage. Eventually, that company is freed from its destructive corporatism by handing the controls back to the creators rather than the empty suits in charge, represented here in the film by Dillinger. That is something you could read into this if you're a Disney fan, and that may make for an interesting read on the film, although maybe it's a little bit too progressive for the time. The creators of the film were more of the mind that major tech corporations like IBM would eventually gobble up, aka derez all of the creators who emerged initially successful from their garage concepts and that IBM would stifle the ingenuity in favor of feeding the giant of its own corporation to become even larger. Now still the fact that Mickey Mouse's head can be seen as part of the artwork that passes by during the solar sailor sequence, it does implant in the mind that those who were working on the film could see the parallels to their own existence, working for the profit overall thinking within the company at the time and what is going on within that cyberscape, within the grid. Although, to be fair, the hidden Mickeys were something that had been a long tradition in Disney films anyway, so you could read into that, or you can choose not to as just being a coincidence. Now, the much maligned Disney of this era, the dark days for Disney, you know, the company had some difficulties in attracting acting talent to their films at that time. However, Jeff Bridges did sign on to the film because of his interest in the concepts that were presented. Although Tron will likely not go down as one of his finer performances as an actor, I don't think he really performs very well when trying to act out in front of these black screens, the matted concept work, all of the stuff that was involved in the painted black sets that had no other definition or having effects that haven't even been put into the film. It really was a struggle for the actors to be able to play without anything to act off of. Even a great actor like Jeff Bridges had some difficulty there. But despite good thespians in the bunch, this is a good cast here, none of the rest of the performers really fare much better than Bridges because many of them had difficulty in performing their roles without a lot of movement because the animation was not advanced enough to add moving actors along with computer animation that simulated motion to go along with them. So it ended up being very stationary in terms of what they could do as actors. Now, David Warner here as the heavy, actually kind of a triple role of being the heavy, he plays Dillinger, he plays Sark, which is the grid avatar, I guess, that uh, Warner has, or his program anyway, and he also voices the master computer itself. He was a fill-in, kind of a late fill-in for the originally intended Peter O'Toole for that role. Now, Peter O'Toole, they had a lot of talks with. He wanted to play Tron, though. He wanted to be the main 
Tron guy in this film. He even went so far as to try to convince the production team that he was still spry enough to handle the physical scenes by jumping around on the furniture. But he ended up passing on the film because after he started hearing more about the black screen and the backlighting effects and all of the other concepts that were in the film, he really could not understand it in the slightest. He ended up passing on it. So David Warner was filling in here. However, Dillinger is kind of a dull villain. And Bridges and Box Lightner really can't breathe any life into their sometimes trite lines. And the curious thing about using David Warner's voice for the Master Control program is that Dillinger was not the original creator of that program, we've come to find. Kind of a head scratcher there, but I suppose you could read a lot more into it that he ended up taking that original creation and making it much more through his nefarious acts. Now, Bruce Boxleitner initially had no interest in doing Tron. However, he ended up changing his mind because, for one, Bridges came on board and he wanted to work with him. And a lot more of the concept boards had been drawn up a little bit later when they were negotiating as to what the movie was going to be trying to achieve visually. So he did become interested in it enough to sign on eventually. Now, with such surreal and breathtaking visuals and this storyline falling somewhere between, say, from the old days, Metropolis, or maybe even a little bit newer, but still old, Wizard of Oz, Tron could have been a great movie with a really good writer and a director that was more than just a first-timer like Lisberger. I should say he did direct Animal Olympics, which was not quite released at the time. Now, fans of Eye Candy are going to enjoy this film. You're going to enjoy it a lot, but I think that if you're not in that interest group, as far as what the film has to offer, you may fall asleep from some of the tedium here. I struggle with interest. I actually watched it three times this week to make sure that I understood this film fully, and I struggled each time. There's a point in this film where I just start to fall off. It's a little bit past the halfway point. I really have a hard time keeping up with it because the story itself is just not built up enough for me to care one way or another what happens. Cindy Morgan is here, and I really like her in this movie. I'm really surprised she didn't do a lot more film work because she seems like a really good presence. She did a lot of TV work after this, but not too much film work, which I was surprised about. She was in Caddyshack, though, one of her more memorable roles there. She joined the film after producers toyed with the idea of actually casting Debbie Harry, Debbie Harry of Blondie fame. They wanted her for the role of Laura, Alan's girlfriend, and Flynn's ex, who also works at Incom. Now, Debbie Harry had been sought after also for the role of Pris in Blade Runner that year. She could have been a star. Didn't quite pan out that way for her. The composer for The Shining, Wendy Carlos, she developed a synthesized score that is consummately appropriate and very memorable. One of the things that you'll remember for this film, if you remember anything at all besides the visuals, is that score. And that really keeps the story within the realm of the digital with its virtual soundscape. It's very electronic appropriately. The visuals use computers in order to give us a peek into the world of computers. And so too does the sound stress the inorganic to match those very visuals. Now, for as much work as many people put into this film, and even after Disney spent millions of dollars in promoting it, Everyone involved with Tron knew it was a gamble, and it had been an unprecedented undertaking in visual design that also relied on this concept that had to root audiences into seeing it. Now, video games were all the rage at the time, and Disney did have a strong desire to break out of their creative tailspin, so they ended up feeling like the chance would prove worth it in the end. I mean, they were just kicking themselves because they passed on Star Wars. They passed on Raiders of the Lost Ark. They didn't want to see another potential blockbuster slip through their fingers. 
Although there's some irony in knowing that they would eventually own the rights to the aforementioned Lucasfilm properties many, many, many years later, of course. Unfortunately, it's a concept whose time had not yet come in 1982. Tron would end up becoming a box office disappointment. It made less than $30 million in its initial run. That barely covered the money that they already had spent in terms of budget and advertising. It really only made a quarter of what E.T. made in its fifth week of release when Tron debuted in theaters. It fell out of the top 10 after a meager three weeks. And that probably will surprise a lot of people who did not know the box office performance of this film. Because Tron, its name ended up becoming a very big thing for a 1980s film over time. It even garnered a sequel, Tron Legacy, back in 2010, which brought back Jeff Bridges and Bruce Boxleitner in their iconic roles and continued the story from where it leaves off in this film. Now, Tron, as I mentioned, is an experience more of sight and sound than it is emotion. So I do want to say it's not a very compelling film beyond its concepts and its design. Nevertheless, it has amassed and it has retained a considerable cult following over the years among people who feel that it had been a film too conceptually different to be appreciated within its own time. And certainly there are elements of the movie that have become part of the science fiction film fabric over the years influences here ranging from The Matrix and Ready Player One just recently dips a lot into the Tron bag for inspiration for some of the concepts there. So a very influential film within the realm of science fiction and certainly it should get some kudos at least for that. Now there were some old guard animators at Disney that refused to work on the film because they feared that computers would take over their roles as artists who drew all of their animation their fears would prove to be unfounded, at least for a while. It would take over a decade before we would begin seeing full-length animated features done primarily with computers with the coming of Pixar. John Lasseter, of course, of Pixar fame and now really heading Disney Animation, he had witnessed the work on Tron while he was an animator at Disney. He didn't work on Tron, but he did see Tron being developed, and it really planted this idea within his mind of where he wanted to go artistically eventually. He even has gone on to say that without a Tron, there would have been no Toy Story. Now, the time and the technology were right in the mid-1990s in a way that it really wasn't in the early 1980s in Tron's heyday. Most Hollywood animation is done entirely with computers nowadays, and it showed how far the tree has blossomed from Tron's original seed. So Tron is one of those films that I love for what it does so well, and yet the things that I find lacking are so absent here. I can't really give it a strong recommendation. It has its fans. There are some people that love it. I remember Ebert gave it like four stars at the time because he really likes these conceptually original work there with production design. He really enjoyed that film. It has its champions. There are some people that truly love it. I'm sure those people are going to write to me when I tell them that I give Tron two and a half stars out of four. Not a four star film for me. Two and a half stars on my scale means that it had the tools, it had the talent to be something really special, something really could recommend wholeheartedly to most people, but I can't quite do it. It's so close. I go back and forth with this film, but eventually the story, the characters just do not interest me enough to find out what's going on. All of the things that I enjoy about this film the most come from the original concepts and that visual design. And for some people, that's going to be more than enough to entertain them. For me, I like something more with that. I love storytelling. That is my main emphasis when it comes to reviews. And the storytelling here just does not work for me. Maybe I will eventually read that novelization and then try to take this in again. But as I always respond to people who say, well, if you read the book, you'd understand. If you have to read a book to really appreciate a movie, then the movie is not that good. 
And that's just how I feel about it. So two and a half stars is the most I can give Tron. So I'm sorry, everybody. I know that there are a lot of people who are listening to this as they do with every episode that I do. There's going to be fans who are looking for a big rave fan take for their films. And I'm not providing it because I am at my core trying to be an honest reviewer here. I really would love to give fans everything that they want with these reviews, but I can't. But I do hope that you did find it interesting enough to listen to. There's a lot of trivia that I do try to throw in. And if you have your own takes, I do encourage you to write to me. You can find my contact information at my website, quipster.net. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net is where to go. As far as what I'm going to be covering next week, we're going to shift gears just a little bit. We had the cyberscape of Tron here. I'm going to take the computer cyberscape and turn it into the more, I guess, kind of organic or imaginary brain-produced one, the ones from the human brains. I'm going to start a trio of films in which dreams and the dream realm become part of the action of the film. So dreamscapes coming up. I'm going to start off that trilogy with a 1985 film called Explorers. It has Ethan Hawke, very young Ethan Hawke. It has River Phoenix. It's directed by Joe Dante. If you haven't seen it already, I encourage you to watch it before I get to my review next week. Explorers from 1985 for next week's episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you so much for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. (laughs) 